0: I was in, I was in.
1: Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well this fine spring day. I have an amazing show lined up for you guys this evening, one filled with a fine array of supernatural stories. But before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that the fun does not stop here. In addition to the free weekly episodes, you can pick up two additional episodes a month as well as an investigation video featuring me, your fearless guide, all for the low, low price of $4 a month. Just last night, I posted the first episode of April, a two-hour marathon of cryptic conversation with Cryptonaut Podcast's Mark Stores. We covered a few clips previously played on the show and shared a few from Mark's very own website, cryptopia.us. So if you love the show and want more, now is your chance. Simply head over to patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us Podcast or follow the link in tonight's show notes. Please remember, however, I truly appreciate each and every one of you, whether you sign up or not. Okay, let's get on with tonight's show. Anyone that's listened to more than a dozen episodes of Monsters Among Us will know that I'm a little bit fascinated by ghost lights, otherwise known as earth lights or spook lights. These tiny glimmers of light that, despite showing up in the same place on nearly a nightly basis, have thus far escaped the explanation of science. Well, I'm happy to share with you a call that just might touch on these mysterious twinkling lights. This is Carly's call from the state of Arkansas.
2: Hey Derek. Um this is Carly from Arkansas. I had called well I'd emailed in my uh story about um a Sasquatch sighting in the backwoods of Arkansas. Um I'm calling in again. I'm not sure if this was really a ghost sighting or even a weird it it just seemed weird. Um I was driving um to my parents' place and on the side of the road was this really small, um, old cemetery. Um, this town maybe had 37 people in it, um, nowadays, so the cemetery is very small. Anyway, it was night, very clear, um, and this happened about, I think it was back in September, um, but I was heading to my parents' place, and, I kind of look over at the cemetery. It's still night. um, And there's these two really soft um, green and blue lights. And they're kind of moving around a little bit, um, up and down, almost looking like they play with each other. When I mean small, I mean um, think of like a Christmas light kind of size. And so at first that's exactly what I thought it was, maybe some christmas light decoration where only two lights were on or um maybe it was like a reflection um from the light from my headlights um what made me think it was strange was going back the same uh route that same night still um still very clear and those lights were gone um i didn't really think anything about it until I went back to my parents last night and looked and kind of remembered um, that. So I'm not sure if that was really anything paranormal or a ghost or anything, um, but I just thought it was kind of interesting and strange. Anyway, I love the podcast. Thank you again. Bye.
1: Thank you, Carly. I'll be honest. My first thought that there were simply a few people in the cemetery wearing headlamps. Some of these fancy lamps even have colored filters that you can apply to the light that help preserve your night vision, so the colors weren't even a concern. But as any current or past ghost hunter will tell you, it is illegal to be in a cemetery after dark, no matter what your purpose is. Now of course that doesn't rule out this possibility, there are lawbreakers everywhere, but it does at least cause us to question that theory. The fact that the encounter took place in the state of Arkansas may be more than just a coincidence. Of the nearly dozen reported spook lights across the country, one of the more famous is Arkansas' own Gurdon Lights. I will let Dennis Farina of the Unsolved Mysteries reboot shed some more light on this subject.
3: Gurdon, Arkansas. One of the many nearly identical towns along the railroad between St. Louis and Dallas. But Gurdon is a little bit different. As darkness falls, the locals anticipate the arrival of their very own unsolved mystery. For decades on the tracks just outside of town, eerie lights have magically appeared. I'd say that I've seen it where I couldn't write it off as being anything else probably 20, 25 times at least. And I'm a very skeptical person.
0: Over the years, I have personally seen it hundreds of times with my father and my family.
4: I've seen the light at least 60 or 70 times. Uh, and of course, usually when you see it one time in that evening, you can see it several times in succession.
3: What is the Gurdon Light? A natural phenomenon, a long running prank, or perhaps something otherworldly? A legend that goes back to the 1930s may explain it. Around midnight on a chilly winter night, section foreman Will McLean confronted one of his workers, Lewis McBride.
4: I got something I need to tell you, and I want. You- it doesn't concern you boys. Now go on, and clock
3: out. The day before, a freight train had derailed just outside of Gurdon.
4: This is your last night, McBride.
3: McClane believed that McBride had sabotaged a section of the truck. I don't
4: want to hear any more about it. Just pick up your pay and get off the yard. I need this job.
3: Don't hell the matter you. When McLean didn't return home, a search party was quickly assembled they came upon a trail of blood and followed it along the tracks to the edge of town. At the end of the trail, they found the lifeless body of Will McLean. By dawn, McBride had confessed to the murder. In February of 1932, he was executed at the state penitentiary. Soon after that, people began seeing the Gurdon light on a regular basis. Local legend said that it was the ghost of Will McLean, doomed to spend eternity walking the tracks with his lantern. One of the first sightings was reported by a conductor named John. When he stepped out of the back of the caboose one night, he was startled by what he saw. They say that John went out on the back platform to investigate, and the light was Real far off and kind of faint, but it seemed to be traveling the same speed they were. All of a sudden, it just shot up, and he's just like paralyzed, hanging onto the grab iron and just transfixed, staring right into the light. According to John, the light followed the train for more than a mile. Finally, it veered off in the direction of the cemetery. Ever since, looking for the Gurdon light has become something of a local pastime. If you go down there uh, with some regularity, uh, you're definitely going to see it
4: after a while. Walking down the tracks in the total darkness always left you with a little eerie feeling. I've seen it come on in a quick flash and seen it fade in and then fade back out.
3: The descriptions of the light are quite consistent. It hovers one to three feet above the tracks and is rarely visible for more than 10 seconds at a time.
1: I suggest going to the show notes tab and watching this full video. It's some fascinating stuff. Whatever these things are, I just can't help but to be fascinated by them. Thank you again, Carly, for taking the time to share your call. Up next, we head for the hills of West Virginia to visit with an old friend of the show, the following tale comes to us via Colby, a.k.a. Captain Catfish.
4: Hey, Derek, it's your old buddy Catfish here. i um, calling from Morgantown, West Virginia. I uh, just pulled over from uh, heading home from work, uh, staring at the cemetery. Um, you know, just setting the mood, I guess. Um, hope all is well when you're in. Your end. just want to call in with a story. Um, I totally forgot about this until... Um, basically just listening to the podcast in general and just kind of refreshing my, uh, my memory. Um, so aside from the, you know, the, the, the creepy Jesus figure and the weird synchronicities that I called about before, um, uh, another, another thing happened when I was like eight years old, um, was right after my parents got divorced. So there's like a lot of, um, probably a lot of like negative energy being passed around our, our, our home. Uh, I think people have energy that they kind of exude, to begin with so i do think that can possibly be like a trigger or a, a cause of, of maybe visions or hallucinations or in this case even sounds. but um so so my father was in vietnam and he brought home a, a music box uh, before my parents even got married he actually brought it home from my grandmother and after they got married um he gave her the music box and, uh, from the time I was a child, it never worked. Uh, this thing was broken. Um, just didn't work. The only, the only way you could get any sound out of it was to manually crank the knob on the back and it would start playing. Um, so yeah, one day my mom was like, you know, in the bedroom and she was, you know, kind of like upset as, 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 uh, as understandable. Um, she was crying and, you know, praying and I'm not much of a religious fella. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much of this is related to that, but um, you know, she was praying to God to give her a sign, um, and this music box started playing, and she basically screamed for me to come into the room, and so I could see it because obviously it, it scared her, and uh, yeah, there we go, uh, music box playing, um, played for about thirty seconds, and hasn't played since. Um, I'll actually post a picture of the of the music box on. Uh, the Monsters Among Us Facebook page if anybody wants to check it out. Um, It's just just an interesting thing, I remember. But, yeah, spooky, uh, religious, Vietnamese music box story. So, all right, buddy. You have yourself a fine day. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Colby. I've posted pictures of the music box in the show notes for tonight's episode, which can be found at MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com forward slash show notes. Now, it's very difficult to make even an educated guess as to why this box decided to play at that moment, other than some paranormal explanation. Now, unless, of course, you're a religious person, then perhaps these events are more miracle-based. I do have one question, however. Does this awesome little music box play any Captain Catfish classics? Thank you again, Colby, for taking the time to share. And just a reminder to everyone else... Go to the show notes and click on the link for Captain Catfish. Just trust me on that one. Our next story comes to us from the state of Missouri. This is James's call.
5: Hey Derek, it's James from Kansas City. This happened January 6th, 2018. It was about 11pm. I was on my Xbox playing a game when a bright light streaked across my window that faced the backyard. I love horror movies, so what did I do? Yep, I went to see what it was. So I grabbed my coat as it was chilly and out the back door I went. Initially, I didn't see or hear anything. As I walked around to the front of my house, again there was nothing. But just then, a light appeared and was shining down on the trees, ...and the park that was across the street from me. It was the standard bright light, white in color. Honestly, it moved like a spotlight, hitting the trees and the ground, and even a couple of houses. This light went off and back on every couple minutes. I know the light was coming from some type of object, but somehow it was quiet and blended into the darkness of the night sky, up to which it couldn't be seen. Curiosity got the better of me, and I had the idea to run in the house and grab my thermal imaging binoculars, so I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to UFOs, the alien kind anyway. Now, what I saw with thermal imaging was strange. It was a helicopter. You could see it clearly, just a helicopter. It didn't seem to be high. Uh, It was just hovering over the park. I watched it for a few minutes, and then with its lights off... Uh, It then flew off in a northward direction. Knowing what it was, I could only assume it was military, as there was no noise coming from it, and the color had to be black. The last thing I noticed was as it flew off, it had no other lights, no flashing or safety lights. In a separate sighting in December, I witnessed an airplane. It looked to be the size of a cargo plane, all black, also no lights, and flying... As low as I have ever seen a plane fly over the city. Oddly enough, it was quiet also. If I wasn't looking up as it passed, I wouldn't have noticed it. Anyway, love the show, and thanks for your time. Thank you, James.
1: I was recently listening to the Paranoia podcast, and the host, Olav, was talking about a device on some military helicopters that drastically reduced the sound of the engine and the rotors. Apparently, this application is already in use in some military exercises. So perhaps this is what James witnessed that evening. If the craft was searching for someone or something, it may have been beneficial for it to stay as quiet as possible. Hence, the use of this mechanism. My only other rational guess would be that the helicopter was simply so high that it could not be heard. But it's been my experience that if you can see a helicopter flying, you can also hear it. A higher altitude would also make it difficult for a spotlight to reach the ground with any concentration. So, James, you might want to do a search for military bases in your area. Perhaps the explanation is as simple as that. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience. Our next story comes to us in the written form. This is Richard's story from Arizona. Hello. Hello. I love your podcast and listen to it while working from home. My encounter happened back in the summer of 2006, and I've thought about it quite a bit since. I was working at a local community college and was friendly with all of the members of the campus police force. There was an officer who had moved from another city, and he always struck me as odd because he wore his gray hair longer than the other officers, and he wore his pants with the legs cut much longer to where they looked like modified bell-bottoms. He was always very professional and courteous when we would bump into each other and would make small talk while waiting for our breakfast orders at the cafeteria in the morning. He suddenly passed away during our Christmas break in the winter of 2005. It was heartbreaking to come back to work and learn of his passing. For the next few months, I would find myself looking for him on several occasions in the morning while waiting for my breakfast. Time moved on and I no longer thought of him. That is, until June 2006, I had gone to a tobacco shop that was located on our local reservation to purchase some cigars. It was busy that day and there was a line of about 15 people waiting to check out. I had just gotten in line when I looked up and over to my left was this campus police officer with the long hair and the bell-bottoms standing in the corner facing the line of customers. I was confused at first thinking I might have gotten wrong information about his passing but then remembered that there had been a memorial service at the college. I caught his eye and nodded he nodded back with a stoic look on his face. I knew something was off kilter when I noticed as each customer paid and turned to leave, they had to pass in front of the officer and were less than six inches away from him. At first I was kind of mad that these people were invading this officer's personal space, until it slowly dawned on me that they couldn't see him. I lowered my gaze and watched him out of the corner of my eye until I reached the counter. I paid the cashier and turned to leave fully expecting to see the officer once more, but he was gone. I simply muttered that I missed seeing him at breakfast and continued on my way. I have professional friends who were employed with the tribe during that time, and they were able to examine the tobacco shop surveillance tapes of that day. And although I was on the tape for the duration of my time in there, the officer was not caught on tape. After all these years, I still don't know why he chose to visit me that day. Thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. Sincerely, Richard, Prescott Valley, Arizona. Thank you, Richard. Something about that story is a little bit touching. Perhaps the gentleman wanted to say hello one last time. Of course, it's also possible that someone that looked a lot like a deceased man just happened to be in the store that day. Then again, if that's the case, why didn't he appear in the security camera footage? What a cool little story. Thanks again, Richard, for taking the time to share it. Next up, we head to the state of North Carolina for a story about a sickening feeling at a hotel. This is Riley's story.
6: Hey, Derek. My name is Riley, I'm uh, from North Carolina. Just found the show and uh, decided to go ahead and share one of my stories that I had. So, this took place in the uh, summer of 2016. Me, uh, my brother, and two of our friends were, uh, going down to Charlotte for a convention. And, uh, we had gotten a hotel room, and, um, the way this hotel room was set up, there was kind of this main area that had, uh, the kitchen with, like, a coffee maker, microwave sink, all that good stuff, a, uh, couch that was also a sleeper sofa, and then a chair in it. And then there was a door that led to an adjacent room that, um, had, uh, two twin beds I think. Is that a twin or queen? Um and then the bathroom was also in there. So uh they our friends were paying for the room, so we decided uh, to let them have two beds and me and my brother were going to uh share the sleeper sofa. So, um we it was a weekend thing, so we were going down on Friday. We were gonna stay over Friday night and then uh do Saturday and then we were just gonna come home Saturday night cuz nothing on the convention was really going on Sunday that we really cared about so um, we get down there do the convention on Friday get back to the hotel room and uh, we all go uh, go to sleep but it was a ridiculously hot summer and uh, the room was hot it just it sucked for me because I run very hot a lot of the time so um, I just couldn't stand sleeping next to my brother because he was generating body heat or whatever, so I was just ridiculously hot. So I uh, get up off of the sofa, or uh, the sleeper sofa, it's basically a bed, and uh, decide I'll try to sleep in the chair because maybe it'll be cooler over there. So I get over to the chair and uh, go to sleep, and then during the night, I wake up, and I just have this overwhelming sense of dread, like something horrible is about to happen, and i've never I never felt anything like that before or since and so uh, the room was pretty dark, so I'm looking around just trying to see like okay, is somebody in here trying to murder us or something? so I'm re- watching uh, the door to the the door to the room uh, that goes out into the hallway and then the door to the bedroom but I don't see anything and uh, the way this chair was sitting there was um, it's uh, kind of sitting next to. A window that would be like back over my right hand shoulder so I look out the window I don't see anything at this point I'm just really like starting to get super paranoid so um, I had a pocket knife with me so I'm like gripping my pocket knife ready to you know stab someone if they try to break into the room and uh, eventually uh, nothing ever happened Uh, I guess I managed to fall back asleep or whatever woke up the next day and everything was fine so I really don't know what it was could have very easily just been due to being in an unfamiliar place or you know stress anxiety whatever it might be but i just thought i'd share with that uh thought it was a neat story love the podcast keep up the good work man
1: thank you riley i usually at least leave the door open to the possibility of the paranormal when analyzing calls but in this particular instance i'm not so sure that is the case i can't begin to tell you how many times i've woke in a strange place with the feeling of panic or dread Those feelings are only escalated when I'm sleeping uncomfortably. In a chair, or in a hot room, for example. So it's my opinion that what Riley experienced, while terrifying, is simply a natural reaction to waking up in a strange place. Then again, I am no expert and could be completely wrong. Either way, I appreciate you taking the time to share your experience, Riley. Explainable or not, I'm sure that it was terrifying. Now our next tale takes us west, to the beautiful state of Colorado. This call was submitted anonymously.
7: Hello, Derek. I love the podcast. Uh, I do a lot of driving for work, so I take your show with me everywhere I go. I'm from Grand Junction, Colorado, and I'll just get straight to my story. Uh, So, when my best friend and I were 12 or 13, we decided to go camping in the hills behind his house. He lived on a small mesa overlooking the valley, and it was an amazing place to grow up. Always, we walked back in the hills to this old road that was built in the 1800s. It was the original road into the Grand Valley. Most of it was eroded away or overgrown except a spot on the bottom of a draw. It was the perfect place to camp, and we had an amazing view of the valley below. We had a great time laughing and talking that night. We turned in around 11 p.m., and I crashed hard. About an hour or two later, I woke from a dream in which a carriage drawn by a flaming horse skeleton with a flaming skeleton rider rode straight through my tent. In my dream, as he passed through, he took my buddy away and disappeared around the bend. I woke up terrified. When I came to, I noticed my buddy was nowhere to be seen. As anyone would, I panicked and just then he jumped into the tent and told me to be quiet. He pointed at the hillside through the rain fly, and we could make out what appeared to be hunched over humanoid figures zigzagging all over the hillside. The figures moved around for a few minutes, then suddenly stopped, and we never saw them again. We didn't go back to sleep that night. As we sat there, talking the rest of the night, he told me about a weird dream he had that woke him up and shook him. He said he had a dream that an old horse-drawn carriage came out of nowhere and drove right through our tent and took me away. He said it looked like a dusty old man from the 1800s and the horse looked like its skin was leather stretched across a skeleton of a horse. When he woke up from that dream, he stepped outside to see the figures on the hill. That's when he jumped into the tent. Needless to say, we never went back there. Thank you for letting me share this with you. I haven't really shared that story with anyone before.
1: Thank you, caller. This is truly a scary account. I've had nightmares while camping, and not unlike the previous call, when you awake in the tent, it takes several minutes to collect your composure and calm yourself down. So I could see how a simple nightmare could be the issue. However, this is one of those stories that leave me with more questions than answers. For example, where was the tent set up? Could it have been located on an old stage route? Were there ghost stories told that night? If so, did any involve a ghostly stagecoach? Did both parties describe the coach and the driver separately, and if so, did the details match? It's questions like these that help determine if what was experienced was a coincidental nightmare or something far more sinister. I'm left with one final question regarding this case. Exactly where was it that the stagecoach driver was planning on taking these scared young men? Thank you again for the call. All right. I have three more stories to share with you this evening. But before I do, your morning announcement. Get yourself some Monsters Among Us swag. I still have a few decals left in addition to some t-shirts and some koozies. So hit that shop tab on the website and pick up yours today. Also, I'm toying around with the notion of making the theme song available as a ringtone. So if you're interested in picking that up for like a buck, shoot me a message. If I get enough interest, I'll throw that up there as well. And lastly... I always need stories. So if you have a great one you'd like to share, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com for more submission options. And if you're willing to have your story read as part of the paid content, please just mention that at the beginning of the call. All right, as promised, back to the action. I often get more than one submission from a single listener. It's something that happens all the time. Typically, I like to break these calls up. I'll play one this week and play another a month or two down the line. But since our next caller included both his stories in a single recording, I've decided just to play it that way. So without further ado, this is Tucker's Call from Vermont.
8: Hi Derek, my name is Tucker, and I actually called in last week uh, twice. The first time being about a UFO that my dad and I saw above our house in Vermont back in 2001. The second time was about what I now know as the Hat Man, thanks to your show. I also posed a most likely impossible question to answer, which was why. Do some of us see these strange things and some of us never see anything at all? I wanted to resubmit my stories with a bit more professionalism as the previous submissions were made on my cell phone and in my car during work. Firstly, I'd like to say I love the show. I discovered your podcast only two weeks ago and have listened every day uh, at work through almost the entirety of each day. It also goes without question that your show is probably most likely therapeutic to many of your listeners since so many of us have been living with something that we can't explain. So without further delay, here are my two very different stories. It was 2001 in Wilmington, Vermont. I was 10 years old and my parents had recently gotten a divorce. Twice a month, my parents would set aside one night where my sister and I would have one-on-one time with each parent. During this time, it would be one night, just me and dad, and then the next week, one night, just me and mom. My sister would be with the opposite parent during that one night as well, and the rest of the days during the month, my sister and I would be together for two weeks at mom's then two weeks at dad's. This night it was my one-on-one with Dad, and we had decided to go to a Chinese buffet and see Jurassic Park Three, because it was theaters. It was in theaters at the time. I remember in the theater running to the bathroom to throw up, which I blamed on the Chinese food. So we decided to leave the theater early and go home. Now, to give a little background of Wilmington, Vermont. Wilmington is a very small, very old low populated town hidden within a valley surrounded by mountains in isolation the mountains seemed to roll on and on without any sign of greater populated areas there was never city lights reflecting the sky never much noise like that from a highway and on some nights stars lit up the night sky with so much clarity you could see the satellites in space as tiny dots moving in uniform motion across the night sky we lived on the top of a mountain called hogback mountain about 2400 feet in elevation the main road went straight across the summit where large uh, a large gift shop was perched with uh, decks carrying those large 25 cent binocular stands for tourists to see out of those ones you'd see um, at the top of any sort of uh scenic view. Near the top, uh, there were many dirt roads that trailed off into low-populated streets, maybe one house every 500 feet or more. My dad bought a house immediately after they divorced on one of those streets. It was one of those Swiss chalet-styled homes characterized by widely projecting roofs and facades decorated with wooden balconies and carved ornaments around the edges. It was used as an old ski house in the 70s for large groups to stay while vacationing in Vermont. In a nutshell, while living there, I gained some of the best memories from my childhood. Back on topic now, we left the movie theater around 9 o'clock p.m. and headed straight home. The drive took about 25 minutes, so we pulled in around maybe 9.30 p.m. By this time, of course, it was completely night now, and the sky was very clear. We could see all the stars. As we pulled into the long gravel driveway, we noticed some very str- something very strange above our house. My dad and I both stretched forward to look up through the front windshield at what appeared to be a very large, black, triangular-shaped object floating only about 800 feet above the house. Now, I cannot stress enough how enormous this thing was. It took up almost our entire open lawn, surrounded the house, uh, which was about half an acre. Although from first glance, one might say the object was triangle-shaped. However, from our close view, we could see that the tip of each corner lay flat, technically giving the shape six sides. Uh, The entire object was quite quite flat, Uh, not some upside-down bowl-shaped structure structure on top of a disc, but flat uh, within enough space for maybe two to three floors within the structure. Picture the type of flatness from the large ship in the movie Independence Day with Will Smith, the one that blew up the White House, uh, but shrunken down to the size of about 20,000 square feet maybe, triangular, completely black. The bottom looked smooth, with the exception of three black rings about the size of circus circus rings inside all three corners, and some obvious panels that appeared to be door access to mechanical departments for repairs and, and maybe maintenance. That's just my guess. No sound at all was being emitted from this object. Around the edges of the craft were large, bright bulbous lights lined up like a chain wrapping around the entire thing there were also red and blue colored lights in the line of white lights in a very clear pattern now I'm calling them lights but it looked like the lights were shut off but because of how close it hovered we could see the bulbs and the matte color around them that would emit bright lights uh, bright white lights reds and blues should the lights be turned on in other words I don't think they wanted to be seen my dad and I stepped out of the car and slowly made our way to the front door. Our front door was raised about 10 feet off the ground and had steps from the driveway that led up the side of the house to the deck where the front door was. Not once did we take our eyes off this object, this, this UFO. I remember standing there, staring directly up, holding on to my dad's hand, terrified and motionless, I tried talking, but my dad would quickly shush me as he was trying to listen for any sound coming from this this thing. We stood there for about five minutes or so until the object suddenly and very slowly moved forward. Not up, not sideways, just forward, slowly, with no sound, almost lazily, until we simply could not see it through the dark night sky anymore. We quickly went inside, and straight to the computer. At the time, the best we uh, the time the best we had was a good old-fashioned dial-up connection. After only about ten minutes of searching, we found a website ran by a graphic designer in Vermont who saw the same object only a few months before. The designer created a digital copy of the ship, which matched our sighting completely. But since then the website has disappeared. And I have never been able to find another picture of our sighting. The question is, I have, is, why? Why our house? Why Was it surveying the land? Did it notice we weren't home and wanted to learn something? What I do know is, I never saw it again. But the memory will forever be engraved in my head as if it were yesterday. My second story revolves around the Hat Man. I'd first like to point out that I never associated this experience with anything or researched the experience because I had always assumed it was too unique uh, and allowed the excuse of my eyes simply playing tricks on me as a reason to forget about it. That is, until I listened to your show. I saw what may be this Hat man twice, once when I was maybe six years old, and again when I was twelve. When I was six, we lived across the street from a cemetery in a very populated neighborhood in the downtown area of a large town in Vermont. A window located on a platform halfway up our stairway gave a view to the entrance of the cemetery. One day, when I was walking about up the stairs, I looked out the window and saw what appeared to be a tall man with a black, wide-brimmed like cowboy hat and long cloak or trench coat. This man was completely black, like black as night, head to toe. There was no distinguishable features. It quite literally looked like a tall, pitch-black shadow with very clear, sharp, defined edges, like the shape of a person. The object stood slightly back inside from the entrance of the cemetery and faced my house, motionless. I looked away, and then back again. And it was still there. Outside was dusk, and there was still enough daylight to see clearly. I went downstairs and walked out on our porch. It was summer and we kept our front porch storm door open and only the screen door closed. And I looked out the screen door and the man was gone. I felt uneasy but not afraid. If I remember correctly, I simply forgot about it after a week or two. When I was 12, my mother sister, two stepbrothers, and stepdad, were hiking a particular trail on a mountain I can't remember the name of to train for a summer hike across the Appalachian Trail. Now, we weren't going to hike the entire trail, but uh, we wanted to cover most of it. And and sadly, um, we never actually were able to do it. The first uh, quarter mile of the trail was a wide gravel-covered path, large enough for ATVs and trucks to go up if needed. Now, we've hiked this trail maybe three or four times. It was close to the house, and it was uh, really good training for something like what we were trying to do. On the third time we hiked this trail, And had just stepped back onto the gravel path while descending back after a long hike up, I noticed something. It was almost dusk, still plenty of sunlight. And about a hundred feet behind us, up the trail, at the start of the gravel pathway, the same thing I saw when I was six stood there, watching us or me. This time the object was very close. I could see the body shape, but again, it was completely black, like black hole, black, almost drawing in light, devoid of light. I whipped my head all the way around behind me, and he was still there, motionless. Its clothes were not moving. It was not moving. I looked back forward and asked if anyone sees the man behind us. And I was responded with confused, sarcastic no's and you're seeing things. And when I looked back, it was gone. But as I turned my head back around to look back forward, and my eyes naturally saw the woods next to us on the path, as I turned around, there it was again, this time maybe only 20 feet from us, peeking out from behind a tree. We kept walking And when I looked back again, this time slightly ahead of the tree, and I could see the other side of it, there was nothing there. Now this time, seeing him behind the tree, this really scared me. But as I was able to suppress my urges, I kept my mouth shut. My mom very recently confesses she was looking for a man after I asked if anyone had seen anything thinking there was a real person following us. Since then, I'm 26 now, married, and have a two-year-old son. I have never seen anything like that again. I've never seen a UFO again. I've never seen anything that I would consider supernatural or extraterrestrial. This time, however, should things ever appear again, especially this hat man, I hope, should my nerves be under control, that I can get its attention. I want to know what it is and why it allowed me to see it in the first place. I think I deserve that. Thank you for listening to my stories. And uh, again, I love the show. Keep it going.
1: Thank you, Tucker, for both of those stories.
8: While I find the Hatman story both
1: terrifying and fascinating, I'm going to focus most of my energy on the UFO that Tucker describes. So as most long-time listeners will remember, I've touched on these flying triangles, or wedges, before. There have been several flaps over the years, including Belgium in 1989, Phoenix in 1997, and Southern Illinois in 2000. While well, in recent years, the veil over this strange craft has been lifted, or has it? Many UFO investigators refer to this craft as the TR-3B, a craft supposedly developed by the United States military. In fact, there is even a patent available, which can be found in tonight's show notes. But more on that in a minute. This craft is said to have began as a concept in 1977, and first hit the skies in the late 80s. It's reportedly nuclear-powered, completely silent, with the ability to hover. Now, back to that patent. Apparently, the patent was applied for and abandoned by the Patent Office for lack of response by the inventor, a man named John St. Clair. But is that where this theory stops? St. Clair paid hundreds of dollars to process his patent, so why would he be so willing to abandon it? Please do me a favor and slip on your tinfoil hat for this next statement. Is it possible that the patent was abandoned because the U.S. government already created the craft and currently have it in use today? Could this be what Tucker and his father saw that evening? Something tells me we haven't heard the end of these strange black triangle hovering vehicles. So thank you again, Tucker, for taking the time to share both of these amazing stories. Alright, here it is, folks, the final story of the episode. Please welcome Mickey to the show.
0: Hi, my name is Mickey. I'm currently living in Springfield, Oregon. Recently, I discovered your podcast, and I've been binge listening, and I really love it. Um, I want to tell you something that happened to me when I was a long-haul truck driver. It happened on a night in early March of 2011. I'm a female, and on this trip, I was solo. I picked up a load of paper out of Lewiston, Idaho. The daytime temperature that day was only about 15 degrees, and there was a lot of snow. But it had been a couple of days since it snowed, so the roads were mostly clear. I needed to take the load to Billings, Montana. Normally it, I'd have gone through on the I-90, but I-90 was closed for, for snow, I guess. I don't know, it was closed for some reason. Another trucker there said, oh, just take uh, US-12 to Montana. It's a good road and it's open. So I looked at it on the map and decided to try it. Um, once I got loaded, I went to the truck stop because paper's a really heavy load and I had to weigh the truck. Um, and there I took out my trash and got fuel and weighed the truck, and I also bought some hot wings there to eat later. I started along US 12 at about 3 p.m. Um, it's only two lanes and it's pretty windy, and once I got down into the Loxa River Basin, I think I'm pronouncing that right, the temperature gauge read about 5 degrees and it was definitely colder Um, freezing fog had formed and the visibility was getting bad and on my right was the river And sometimes my wheels were only 2 feet from the river and that was kind of scary because it was a really heavy load and there were cracks on the side of the road and I was afraid that the whole thing was going to collapse and I would go into the river which would have killed me Um, there was Steep mountainsides on both sides of the river and one was just right next to the, the other lane of the road going up and because it was so steep and so far up um, I couldn't get any signal at all not on my phone or on the Qualcomm and the Qualcomm is the it's like a satellite device that trucking companies use to tr- track their trucks And I had no signal on it, so I knew nobody knew where I was. Um, So, that being said, it was getting dangerous to keep going. And the last car had passed me probably an hour before, and it was I was about 30 miles from the last structure I saw, which was a ranger station that was closed. Um, And the road was getting icy, so I needed to pull over and. I finally found a little pullout by a boat ramp, and so I pulled out there, and my truck barely fit off the road, And uh, but I decided, okay, this is safe, and so I got out and I walked around and checked the truck, and it was covered in ice, so I know it was heavier than when I weighed it, and so I just went in the truck, and uh, I shut the curtains to the wind, the windshield curtains, and then I also shut the curtains to the cab to keep it warmer in there. And I I was idling the truck for warm. And um, about 9 p.m., I got up and I looked at the temperature, and it was zero, it said zero degrees, but it was probably more like minus 10 because I was idling, and the sensor is actually in the engine compartment. It's down near the wheel, but it's also, but I was idling, so that's keeping the heat in there. So I figured minus 10 maybe. And, um, I had just laid down to go to sleep right after I checked the temperature, and I heard rustling in the front of the truck, you know, kind of like a plastic or paper rustling. And immediately, I began to smell something, and I would describe it as a cross between a wet dog, rotting meat, and the worst grocery store dumpster on a hot day you've ever smelled. It was horrible. I got up to look and I snipped my trash because I couldn't figure out where it was coming from, but that wasn't it. it kept getting stronger. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And, um, so I sat back down on the bunk and that kind of shook the truck a little bit cause it's air ride. And so immediately when I sat down, something hit the side of my truck, right where my head was. I mean, it was like two inches from my head and sounded like a rock. I jumped and jerked around and another one hit. And I was sure they were making big dents. When the second one hit, I knew what it was. I guarantee it wasn't a bear out there throwing rocks. And a, I'm sure a man, to be out there in that weather, he'd have to have so much clothing he couldn't lift his arm. I know it was a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or whatever else you call them. Um, I really, really wanted to see it. I was kind of excited, but I was also scared that if I put my head in the window, it would break the glass and I would freeze to death because it was so cold that my shampoo bottle that was touching the side of the heated cab was frozen solid. So I just huddled on the bed, and it threw four more rocks, six altogether, and I did count them. (laughs) Um, Gradually, the smell dwindled away, but it it took about 45 minutes because it would get stronger and weaker and stronger and weaker, but he only threw just the six rocks. And I could just imagine him out there walking around the cab trying to figure out a way in or to get me to leave or I don't know what he wanted. The next morning I stayed in the cab with the curtains closed until the first vehicle passed by on the road, probably about 10 a.m. Then I opened the curtains and waited even longer before I went outside. I didn't find footprints near the cab truck, but um, it was icy and the snow had turned to hard ice. But across the road I saw a couple of places on the on the mountainside where it looked like something had knocked the ice away to the dirt. So there was bare dirt. And um, But I really, honestly, um, there was nobody around and only a few cars going by now and then. And I really felt vulnerable. And also, weirdly, I felt like I was being watched. So I got on the road to Montana. But I have to give you a little bit further on the story um i have a theory about why he threw the rocks and i don't think it was just to make me leave and here's why remember i first said i heard rustling in the front of the cab well it turns out that at the time all this happened a rat got into my truck and i think i heard the rustling in the bag where i put the bones from the wings i ate and I didn't really discover for sure that he was on the truck for about three days. Then I thought it was only a mouse because he was going under the dash to hide about a quarter-inch clearance. And I just thought a little mouse was going in and out. And when I finally saw him, it was eight days later, and he was humongous. He, he was bigger than my tennis shoe. So my theory is, as cold as it was, I really think that Bigfoot was chasing that rat to eat. And I think he was mad because the rat climbed up under the idling truck and then chewed his way in and um, I discovered the hole where he got in it was in the rubber grommet that covers the gear shift hole that goes from the gear shift down into the engine compartment and uh, there was a big hole in the back of it and I think he was hungry and he just really wanted to eat that rat so that's it thanks for the opportunity to share and I hope you can use it
1: bye Thank you so much, Mickey, for the call. You know I do love my Bigfoot stories. I want to start off by saying this. Mickey really knows her stuff. The details she provided were top-notch and extremely helpful. And normally I would have found the lack of track suspect, but she did a decent job of explaining the absence of those as well. The only other piece of information I'd like to have is this. Were there any dents in the truck as a result of the rocks? Perhaps that would be the solid evidence needed to prove that something was outside the truck. Now, since no creature was actually witnessed and no tracks were found, I'm forced to ask this question. Is it at all possible that the large rat that made its way into the truck made all the sounds that were heard? In addition, do rats put off a smell that could explain what was experienced that evening? I have so many questions, but at the end of the day, it's just a great call. Thank you so much, Mickey, for taking the time to submit it, and stay safe in your travels out there and that's going to do it for this episode Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes Additional support is given by the talented Warren Pond Abbott and the amazing Addie Lloyd Music for this episode was provided by Coag, Anti-Tector, MyU and Nature World 1986 Thank you all for listening and until next week
2: starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To get behind the wheel. To go out on the open road. To feel a rush of adrenaline. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle but it becomes an exhilarating experience. The invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.